Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. Before we get into anything, I want to point out this snazzy new t-shirt that I have. This you can get at toplobster.com. I'm not sure if Caterpillar is going to press charges for kind of ripping off their design there. Hopefully not, but um, you can go check that out, toplobster.com, and you'll find the Naturalist Capitalist section. There's a whole bunch of hoodies, hats, stickers, anything you want. There's also stuff for Tower Gang, Liberty Lockdown, No Way Jose, Break the Cycle, um, and then a whole bunch of other stuff that you can get. So go check out toplobster.com. On top of that, I had Ron Paul on my show last week. If you missed that interview, go check it out. Uh, it's the episode right before this one. And it's also one of the featured videos at the top of my channel. So make sure you go check that out, share it around. That was a major milestone for this channel and for me, for sure. So go check that out. Also, as always, trying to push you guys to my other platforms. If you're watching this on YouTube live, it'll be on Odyssey pretty soon. And then it'll be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, a few other audio platforms. Make sure you follow me on all those. You can find links to those places in the description. I think Odyssey is down right now. They're having some issues, but once it's back up, you'll find me there. Anyways, I got a good guest tonight. Um, I've been really impressed with all the guys from antiwar.com and the Libertarian Institute, so I'm trying to actually get them on the show. I had Dave DeCamp on a couple weeks ago, hoping to have Keith Knight on soon, but tonight we've got a fellow manual transmission enthusiast, fellow fan of Adam Fitzgerald and collecting World War II uh, military surplus, have a lot of stuff in common. And he's also super anti-war and interesting to talk to. Patrick McFarlane from the Libertarian Institute. How are you doing tonight, man? Doing good, buddy. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So, yeah, why don't you just give us a little intro since you haven't been on the show before. What... What got you connected with the Libertarian Institute? What got you into libertarianism and specifically the whole foreign policy side of things? Yeah, well, so I am a practicing attorney. I have my own solo practice in Wisconsin. So I started my show Liberty Weekly in 2017. I was a in my second year of law school and I started discovering all of these, like the works of Rothbard. And I was actually, at the time, it was Stefan Molyneux that got me in. Uh, but a lot has happened since then. And I was just really excited by this, by the ideas. And I, I was annoying the hell out of my friends and family and my wife with uh, talking about the ideas. And so I figured that I would create some kind of outlet so that I wouldn't lose everyone that was close to me. And uh, I think it turned out pretty well. So a couple of years after that, um, I think the Libertarian Institute came out and I don't know if I emailed them or something like that and, and asked to be on, on the website and things just kind of went forward from there. And I think that I had very early on, I had made friends with Keith Knight and Kyle Lance alone. And I think this was in like 2018. And so we have just been friends collaborating since then. And um, we, we all liked each other's work because we, we work really hard and we enjoy what we do. And we kind of, we, tried to dive really deep down and get to the bottom of a lot of these things. So it was actually Kyle who, who has encouraged me throughout my, my career in the Liberty space to get into foreign policy more so because uh, he's, he's very convincing when he argues that it's the most important issue. And 
we'll, we'll kind of get into this, but I, I got into the Uyghur stuff and that really set me on, on the path to covering foreign policy more often on my show. Yeah. I mean, the, the anti-war angle is interesting because to a complete normie, maybe somebody like Trump seems anti-war and then someone who's a little bit more dug in, they'd be like, oh no, the Tulsi Gabbard is anti-war. And then you like keep digging and you're like, oh wow, no, that's not even anti-war. Anti-war is like super yeah. extreme anti-war propaganda. Um, were you always at that level of extremity, like realizing how much was lies? Because a lot of people are at the point where like, we don't want these endless wars in the Middle East overthrowing dictators, but it goes a lot deeper than that. Were you tuned into that at an early stage or did that take a while to get there? I, I think it actually, it took a while for me to get there. And I think um, I wasn't super interested in foreign policy early on in my my time in this space. And I, I think it, it might've been because I was in law school at the time and you really have to do a lot of work to stay informed. And this was when Syria was happening and, and all those those false flag chemical attacks were happening. And I think I, I kind of kept my finger on the pulse of that just a little bit, but I didn't really dive all the way in. And it, it was nice to have Kyle as a buddy because, I mean, if you go back in the archives, you'll see um, I talked about when Turkey was was kind of invading Syria in, in the northern part there, and we kind of got into that a bit. But I really didn't know much of what I was talking about because I focused on you know legal stuff and, and other topics on my show. But I think, you know, in the last couple of years, there's a certain point in time, and, and maybe you can relate to this, read where you can only talk about the NAP so many times. And I, I think it's great when people are there and when you're newer in the movement. But I think at some point in time, you really have to start applying theory to practice. And I think that foreign policy is one of the best ways to do that because you're not living in Ancapistan when you do that. You're, you're grappling with real world problems. And, um, and, and they don't fit very clearly into the NAP framework all the time. So you, you really have to, you have to use a scalpel really to try to, and especially with stuff like uh, the Uyghur issue, you really have to be careful. Yeah, for sure. So I've done a lot of talking about Ukraine and Russia. And then before that, I've done a lot about Yemen and some stuff about Syria, but I have really not dug into China on this show too much. And that's because to be honest, if there's any theater, I'm not really well-versed in it's China. I know probably more than the average person, but not enough to speak on it with authority. And this year, the Pentagon uh, said that China is the United States number one enemy. And that, that was kind of shocking to me, especially with everything that's going on with Russia right now, nope. that they would say that. Um, so my question is, there, there, there is like this, this belief amongst right-wingers that the Biden administration is just completely sympathetic to China, whatever their goals are, whether it's because of the ties to Rosemont Seneca or whatever it is, they just think that Biden wants to let China get away with whatever it wants to do and that his administration feels the same way. But that's really not true if you listen to Anthony Blinken. Uh, Joe Biden has put sanctions on China uh, for, you know, treatment of the Uyghurs or whatever. So I want you to dispel with that myth first that the Biden administration is friendly to China and ready to let them walk all over the world and walk all over us. Yeah, this is a really popular kind of sentiment that you hear 
um, just in in the foreign policy discourse. And it's a, it's a very hawkish talking point is that Joe Biden is weak. Joe Biden is some pitiful old man, which may outwardly be true, but his policy does not reflect that. And I think there's a really good case to be made that that Biden is the most hawkish uh, president that we've had on China, even more hawkish than Donald Trump. And of course, a lot of the policies that that Biden is continuing and increasing were put into place under Trump. And if you want to get that story, you really have to go to a piece that uh, my buddy and colleague at the at the Libertarian Institute, Connor Freeman, uh, put out uh, last summer, and he was talking about uh, you know all of these policies that that kind of started under Trump and were continuing under Biden. You know, encircling China with military bases, selling uh, millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in in weapons to Taiwan, embroiling that situation, um, establishing U.S. embassies in places like the Solomon Islands. Uh, pledging to defend Japan's claims to the Senkaku Islands and the Philippines' claims to the Whitsun Reef. Um, so there, there are all these, you know, little fake islands and little archipelagos and islands around in the South China Sea uh, that we've been pledging to defend. So it, it's things like forming military alliances with um, the the newest one is AUKUS, and and that's the one that they've been pushing is the the United States, the United States, Australia, and the United Kingdom. And what we've been doing is uh, doing these military interoperabil interoperability procedures and drills on massive scales uh, with those countries and with with other partners in in the South China Sea in those areas involving hundreds of aircraft flying over dozens of airfields uh, involving thousands of soldiers and and so it's really things like that that are are really embroiling tensions in that area and really signal that. The, that China is in the crosshairs of the U.S. empire. And you mentioned the, the 2022 uh, National Defense Strategy. Uh, I wrote a piece about that called uh, Uncle Sam's Grand Delusion, and that went out this week at the Libertarian Institute. And in there, I talk in depth about what the National Defense Strategy is and how they're, they're trying to say, well, you know, China is our number one enemy. They are our main competitor, but at the same time, they are trying to use this strategy to put a pin in in Ukraine, and they're they're saying ultimately we want to abandon Ukraine and and kind of the the European front to focus on China primarily. But they really want to have their cake and eat it too. I mean, I call it Uncle Sam's delusion because Uncle Sam is delusional if he thinks that he can maintain two main fronts against the the named enemies of Russia and China and what our policy is really continuing that practice of countering them on two fronts because we're in the middle of a cold war right now um and and this strategy in 2018 uh James Mattis put forward the um the national defense strategy from 2018 which was the last one before this most recent one uh and he called the beginning of renewed great power competition which is basically a really boring way of saying cold war 2.0 yeah so most populist right-wingers i'm not talking like neoconservatives here like tucker carlson marjorie taylor green people of that cloth none of them i don't think have been so blatant to say we want to go to war with china but they want a trade war with china for sure and they want to sanction china 
So, I mean, if you're a libertarian, if you're a Ron Paul libertarian, then you would think that sanctions are an act of war. If goods don't cross borders, soldiers will. So, you know, that's a, that's a big problem. <laughs> that, that's the that's the attitude that um, populist right wingers have toward China. Uh, do you think that our trade with China, which I think China is what, like our number two producer of goods, or is it our number one? It's number one or number two. It's way up there. And um, we're also, you know, a huge customer of theirs, obviously. Um, so if that where there's a way that could lead us toward a more aggressive situation with them, right? Yeah, I do believe so. And and one of the big things about the populist right, um, people that you know we might get along with in, in some issues, I think one of the, their biggest blind spot is that what they are saying, they're saying we need tougher China policy. And what they're really saying ignores the context of what I just talked about. All these, these military escalationism, all these drills, all the weapons sales to Taiwan, the, the Uyghur genocide campaign uh, that's, that is propagated mostly by the U.S. State Department, um, those, those are the context that's missing when you say we need tougher China policy. And if that's not what you mean, if you don't mean those things, if you condemn those things, then you better be loudly condemning it. And, and I think it's definitely necessary because war with China is one of the greatest dangers facing the human race right now. And um, of course, right, right now, you, it's also happening in the backdrop of war with Russia, but in some ways, they're kind of one in the same. But I, I think that you, you need to be very careful if you're someone on the populist right who condemns those policies but would like to see tougher China policy, which... You know, on some levels, it might be a fair, fair avenue to take. Um, I would disagree with it, but uh, there is truth to saying, well, we don't want war with China. Um, but at the same time, if you're advocating all these dangerous policies, what's the difference, really? I mean, um, and so you need to be very clear about that. But um, that's kind of what has been my take on, on the populist right in the China situation. Yeah. Uh, by the way, guys, I just noticed... Um my audio was going through the computer. It should be coming through my microphone now. I don't know if it sounds any different, but um, yeah. So I want to talk about Taiwan versus China a little bit. What level of threat does a Chinese invasion actually pose right now to Taiwan? Is that realistic after seeing what's happened in Ukraine with Russia and seeing you know, what happened in Afghanistan after we pulled out. That's the main right-wing talking point I hear is after seeing how weak we are in Ukraine and seeing what a poor showing we had in Afghanistan, now China is going to feel emboldened with Taiwan. Is there a legitimate fear there? What do you think? Well, I think that anything can happen. And I think that what we saw with the Ukraine situation is that uh, there were a great many number of people who um, are very good on foreign policy who didn't necessarily think that Putin would do what he did. So anything could happen. However, looking at the evidence and, and how it is, I don't think that there's a great danger of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan right now. Um, China has long since said that they desire reunification with Taiwan, um, that they desire peaceful re reunification with Taiwan. However, they, they recently dropped the peaceful part of it. Uh, but make no mistake that reunifying Taiwan with China is, is an objective uh, for the Chinese. It's a very emotional subject for them. 
Uh, it's something about, you know, ever since uh, you had the, the civil war where Chiang Kai-shek fled and the nationalists were defeated and went to Taiwan, they've desired reunification. They see Taiwan as being part of China. And the U.S. did too. Um, and, and we still should because it's none of our business. Um, but it, in terms of even even the Project 2049 Institute, which is the it's it's kind of the neocon think tank that has been justifying all these arms sales to Taiwan and kind of brokering them in a way. Even analysts from the Project 2049 Institute are they admit that an invasion of Taiwan, a traditional invasion of Taiwan, would be five times larger than D-Day. It would in, it would in, involve 1.2 million Chinese soldiers. It would involve uh, tens of thousands of of ships. It would involve an invasion force that would be impossible to hide. Um, so there's that aspect. There's the aspect of Taiwan getting all these missiles and um, arms from the United States, not to mention the United States' own involvement in, in uh, that area of the world. We've been sailing our warships through the Strait of Taiwan at the rate of almost one per month for the last year or two, I believe. Um, so we're heavily involved in that area. We have spy planes flying over the coast of China, surveilling that area um, at sometimes at the rate of three to five per day. And so if there were an invasion that were being prepared of Taiwan, we would see it. And you have to know that the Hawks would be screaming their pants off, pointing their finger at it, saying it's coming, it's coming, it's, it's coming. So um, in the coast of Taiwan, that faces China only has about four or five beachheads that could actually um, have an invasion, like a, a landing of that type. And I mean, you got to believe they've been pre-sighted for mortars and artillery, uh, that defense plans have been drawn for decades on those areas. So, you know, I could go on and on, you know, but I, I don't think it's very likely. So why do we care so much about Taiwan um, is it for trade? Is it for having someone opposed to China right near their border? Well, what is the reason the United States is so invested in Taiwan? I, I think it's it's a few things. I think it is trade because those computer chips are made there. Um, another thing I forgot to mention is just that the I think Taiwan is China's like number two or number three trade uh, partner. And so there's like billions of dollars of trade going back and forth between them. So any invasion would like to spare that infrastructure. Um, but I, I think it's strategic because it allows the United States a partner in that area of the world so close to China. It allows the United States to be poking a stick at China from, from that side, uh, from the eastern side of the country. I think it, it allows, um, you know, a military foothold. It gives us like a friendly regime to to bounce our military off of in terms of you know if the navy is is sailing around that area if taiwan is our friend it makes it less confrontational um so i i think it primarily is strategic there is the trade aspect to it and the other part is i mean it gives raytheon and boeing and lockheed martin someone of to course. buy tons and tons and tons of stuff so yeah yeah well, let's get into the elephant in the room. This will really piss off any populist right-wingers that are watching this. But I want to talk about, I want to talk about the Uyghurs. And uh, before we get into how they're being treated, I want to talk about their history with the CIA uh, being trained in Afghanistan by Osama bin Laden and also being in Syria 
under the command of uh, Turkey, uh, just kind of give us the history that the Uyghurs have with being used by the United by the United States government and what the eventual goal of the United States government was once these people were trained, what they intended to do with them. So. Some of this comes from Colonel Larry Wilkerson gave a speech at a Ron Paul Institute event a few years back, and he was talking about how the United States has has traditionally has used the Uyghur because there there are terrorists, there are Uyghur terrorists, and there's a long history of confrontation between the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, uh, which I, I guess to take a little bit of a step back. Uh, Xinjiang is uh, an area the size of France. It's a province of China. It's the westernmost province that borders Afghanistan in part. Uh, the Uyghur ethnic group is is the most dominant. Uh, they're they're a Turkic Muslim minority. They're the most dominant ethnic group in the area, but they're not the only one. So there's other there's other smaller ethnicities in Xinjiang province, but there has been they call it East Turkestan. So East Turkestan is a label that the U.S. State Department in some ways has embraced and like the World Uyghur Congress, these separatists, because ideally they would see themselves having more autonomy um, away from, from China. I think some of that embraces secession and actual independence. But there is a movement there and they have used terroristic tactics. I believe the George Bush administration declared them to be terrorists that put them on the terrorist list. So in history, you have Eric Margulies telling Scott Horton in a couple of interviews that I cited in my article and documentary that he, he saw Uyghur terrorists training at, uh, uh, with Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan, I think pre-9-11. Mm-hmm. So you, you kind of have those, those <clears throat> there. What you also have is uh, during the Syrian civil war, you have about 20,000 um, I think that's the high range of estimate, but it's a sizable number of these these Uyghur terrorists going through Afghanistan, going into Turkey, which is a NATO partner, and then uh, fighting in the Syrian civil war on on the behalf of the jihadists in that area. So uh, there, I think there were allegations that Erdogan helped to arm and train and assisted these these Uyghurs in the area. But the one major concern that that Colonel Larry Wilkerson uh, underlined in that speech was concerned that the Uyghurs were going to be going back because at the time they were going back to uh, Xinjiang, they were going through Afghanistan, which I think through kind of he, uh, Wilkerson had some concern about their passage, I believe was my kind of a take that I had. But ultimately he was saying that while the Uyghurs are a very, very strong uh, proxy force that the United States m- may want to court because and he didn't embrace this, but he said, you know, if you're going to have a winning strategy in Afghanistan, you look at your strategic interests and your strategic interests include having um, a, a, an area of the world that borders Xinjiang uh, where you could perhaps court a relationship with these Uyghurs who are, are going to be in the back door of the Chinese uh, state and you can radicalize them, you can fund and train them, and you can basically promote regime change operation in that area and cause a lot of havoc, especially in the event of a war with China. You would have an entire backdoor to China right there that you could, you know, poke and instigate and do that. So you, you, you're coming at them from both sides, essentially. Yeah. So let's get, let's get into how the Uyghurs are being treated in China. So 
correct me if I'm wrong here, but I mean, the claim is that there's a genocide going on, but the reality is that the Han Chinese used to be held to much stricter birthing standards than the Uyghurs. And then in 2017, they were both held to the same birthing standards. So the Uyghurs used to enjoy a lot more freedom than the Han Chinese did. And then in 2017, they were put under the same restrictions. So, I mean, that's still terrible, obviously. Neither of us would support that. But to call it a genocide seems disingenuous, especially when the rest of the country is already held to that standard and then they're put on the same level. Or at least to single out the Uyghurs as being genocided seems very disingenuous. Is that accurate, what I just said, or any critique? Yeah, no, I, it it is. and. Um, to, to preface this out, I mean, obviously we are not people that support any kind no. of, you know, state, uh, state atrocity or, or anything like that. I mean, we're, we're anarchist libertarians. So the, to, to be very careful, I mean, it does appear that the Uyghurs are not being treated well by the Chinese communist party. I, I think there's, there is evidence to support that, um, but the claim has never been, and, and this is the problem with the, the term genocide, the claim has never been that the Chinese are massacring you know, on large scale the, the Uyghurs. And, and even the most ardent Uyghur advocates don't even claim that there is any kind of mass killing going on. But they'll you, use the word genocide still, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and to, to be... Let's see. So if you if you get into because the term genocide actually has a definition mm -hmm. and there are five different ways that you can cause genocide according to the Genocide Convention of 1948. And, and this is what is used in the international criminal courts. Um, so in the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. So the first one is to say killing members of the group in whole or in part. Uh, two, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. Three, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. Uh, four, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Uh, five would be forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So all of those fall flat. Um, the the one that... Except for controlling the birth, right? You could say that one applies. You, you could say that one applies. However, and, and that's the way that Team team Uyghur, as um, Peter Lee puts it, to, as just a, a term to um, sum up all these people who are alleging genocide, um, that's the one that they try and hang their hat on. And right. Peter Lee, he just published. Um, he, he's someone who who's been on the on the Tom, or excuse me, on on the Scott Horton show talking about this. We just ran a piece of his called "The Case Against the Uyghur Genocide" um, on the Libertarian Institute, and um, he he I think he gives he gives a very even handed and fair analysis of the situation, and he talks about um, there was. The, the Uyghur Tribunal is a, a UK uh, kind of like people's court where they have actual barristers, pe people who are attorneys who are assessing this claim. 
and it's it's funded i believe it's funded by um the the world uyghur congress which is funded by the national endowment for democracy so it's very pro uyghur and even they couldn't really make a case that there's a genocide occurring and and what they try to do is they hang their hat on preventing births in whole or in part and i, I mean you could we could spend an hour and a half two or three hours really kind of going over all of this but it all really stems down to the work of Adrian Zenz, who is a um, he's a German sociologist who came up with this New Lines Institute study, which everyone kind of uh, globbed on and ran away with, especially Mike Pompeo and Trump's uh, Trump's administration, to say mm -hmm. that a genocide is occurring. And in it, he he tried his one of his bumper claims was to say that eighty percent of all net IUD insertions. So intrauterine device, it's a birth control device that is, is uh, placed in a woman's uterus to prevent uh, conception. He, he made a statistical miscalculation to say that 80% of all net IUD insertions occurred in Xinjiang uh, during, I think, 2018. And the way that he, he vastly inflated this statistic, which is one that he created called net IUD insertions, which is insertions of IUDs minus removals of IUDs. And it doesn't really seem like that really would mean much of anything. But he said 80% were taking place in Xinjiang when he actually had inflated that number by, I believe, a factor of 10. So he, the real number was 8.7% of net IUD insertions were occurring in Xinjiang. Uh, which which is still you know somewhat a little large, but he going from eighty to eight point seven in that really slight discrepancy. Yeah. A slight discrepancy, <laughs> and so I want to highlight uh, Peter Lee. He had another um, article on on Patreon where he said he'll he'll he said I will adopt a homely analogy to illustrate the fallacy of his calculation. So if you'll uh, bear with me here. He said, let us compare viewership for two movies, King Kong versus Godzilla and Justice League. Um, so he says, I watch King Kong versus Godzilla five times. I can't stand the DC universe, so I hate watch Justice League one time. So that would give Peter Lee net four for King Kong versus Godzilla because that would be five minus one. Um, the rest of my family has a more balanced, balanced approach, he says. Between them, they watch King Kong versus Godzilla 24 times and Justice League 23 times. So that would be net one for King Kong versus Godzilla. Peter Lee says, therefore, by Zen's logic, Peter Lee accounted for 80% of the net viewership for King Kong versus Godzilla. Hmm. He says, in reality, I really only accounted for approximately 8.7% of the actual viewership so so that gives you a little bit of and i can i'll put a link in or i'll send you a link to this read so people who really want to wrap their head around that can can read it for themselves all right so aside from the birth control um what level of inhumane treatment are the uyghurs facing what are these camps actually like do we not know are these just completely unfounded claims that we're hearing about organ harvesting and all this? Do we have an idea of what's actually going on or do we have no idea and there's just not sufficient evidence for this? What's your take on all that? We have no idea. 
Um, and you're put in a place where you either have to believe the Chinese Communist Party, which I don't particularly want to do, <laughs> or you have to believe the U.S. State Department talking about a country that is namedly in their crosshairs. Yeah, so great options there. It's it's you're between a rock and a hard place here, right. and um, there. What we can say, because what the Chinese Communist Party openly admits is that there are facilities where Uyghurs are sent to, and the the whole reason for them being there sounds a lot like the War on Terror. Um, that Uyghurs are a terrorist group. That there is anti. Chinese sentiment growing amongst them. So what we really need to do is to take them, take them to these facilities, keep them there without due process for a number of months or years, and then release them back into the community after we have, um, you know, taught them job skills from the Chinese Communist Party's perspective. We've taught them job skills. Uh, we've given them like more ties to the Chinese state and done things like that. Um, so similar to the Japanese internment camps during World War II, neutralizing a threat of an opposing force, basically. Yeah. And um, so that might be the most charitable take. Um, there, there are lots of eyewitness accounts, and this is what uh, gets really hard, too. There are lots of eyewitness accounts of, um, you know, rape, uh, people being treated very inhumanely uh, people. And if you go to the world Uyghur Congress or the, the Uyghur tribunal, they, they document some of these claims, but so all of these kind of um, I don't, I don't know if I want to go far as to say crimes against humanity, but people being treated very poorly. Um, mm -hmm. And, and that is horrible if to the extent that those claims are true. And, and I mean, frankly, putting people in facilities against their will or without due process by itself is completely horrible. Sounds like the United States in 2020 and 2021, sort of. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Hurting people into places where they don't want to be against their will. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, so, but this doesn't even get into, and, and Peter Lee talks about this in the Libertarian Institute case, that this doesn't even get into all of the U.S.-led uh, atrocities against people. Uh, Muslims in the last 20 years. I mean, oh, yeah. you, so, um, but moreover, all of these claims of things that are happening in these facilities are coming from suspicious sources, sources that don't have very, very much credibility, in my opinion. They're anecdotal, um, they're based on eyewitness testimony, and they're both based on eyewitness testimony from people who have been swept up in organizations that are connected to the U.S. State Department and funded by um, either the CIA or the National Endowment for Democracy, which is just um, you know an organization that does what the CIA used to do covertly, except now they do it openly. Um, so those those links I document in in my article. A lot of people have done work on on these these uh, defectors whose stories are constantly changing and who you find out from their own family in China um, are either running from the law, from stealing things, or or that's or or they have other character flaws, reasons to question their their credibility. And you know, of course, there could be any number of reasons why people in China are accused, you know, are saying that they're criminals or anything like that. It could be the screws are being put to them by the Chinese Communist Party. It could be that. But 
it's um, it's enough to damage their credibility, in my opinion, to not take what they say at as face value. Yeah. So, I mean, there's this narrative that you're not allowed to talk about this, that you'll be censored if you do. I haven't really seen that to be the case. And I see everyone talking about it. Tucker Carlson, Bill Maher. Um, right. Yeah. Even like the Young Turks and like, you know, people who are liberals, left leaning or whatever. Like I, I see pretty much everyone talking about it. The only people I don't see talking about it. I don't know if you saw this exchange on Twitter, but Scott Horton had Max Blumenthal on his show and students for. Oh, yeah, you did. I was talking to you about this when it happened. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For Liberty, some guy from there just freaked out at him claiming that he isn't a reliable source because he denies the Uyghur genocide and no one should talk to him or whatever. Like there's just flare ups like that where I see the opposite of what people claiming. Like I see people freaking out if you say this isn't a genocide and it isn't one of the worst things that's ever happened in history. I don't really see much censorship on it happening the other direction. Am I wrong? I mean, I, I haven't seen any. I, I mean, as far as, if, if you are an NBA player or someone uh, who is is connected to Disney or some kind of corporation that the, the right alleges has all this control over U.S. media, then maybe yes. Uh, but other than that, I yeah, you're exactly right. It seems like it is in vogue to, to be calling this a genocide. I mean, you could you could be Ron DeSantis going on an interview on Fox Business and calling uh, the, the Olympics taking place in China, the genocide Olympics, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it's really popular to be, to be talking about the Uyghur genocide. I, I, I've faced, you know, considerable backlash for questioning the extent of it. Right. So let's talk about epoch news and this is part of, or they're connected to new Tong dynasty NTD. Um, this is where a lot of this sentiment is coming from. I was wondering if you could explain what um, Falun Gong is and how that connects, um, you know, with uh, what's his name, uh, Lee Lee Hank Lee Lee Hong Z. Is that how you say his name? Yeah, I, I believe so. I mean, I I try and say Lee Hong because I I found you know I try to watch the videos and figure out the pronunciation, but so a lot of these claims are being backed up and and by Tim Pool especially when when Tim went on a tear talking about the Uyghur genocide making allegations of of forced gang rape and uh or harvesting that was happening on an industrial scale because those are some of the claims that you'll hear about what's happening in these facilities and um so Tim Pool from and this is how I got into this I I mean I think people have heard me talk about this before but Tim Pool had on these people from China Uncensored, which is a YouTube channel that that talks about. Um, it, they're very anti-China. They talk about a lot of issues with China in the United States. Um, so he had them on maybe five times in the span of like six months or something. And and when they would come on, they would talk about all these things about organ harvesting and about you know mass death and rapes and things like that. And I at the time I was working on a documentary about World War One atrocity propaganda and all of the outrageous lies that were told, demonstrably so, from World War One, like uh, you know the Belgian baby with no hands and babies on bayonets and uh, the 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 nurse atrocities, the nurses getting raped, and one of them was that 
uh, there was a story going around in World War One that the Germans were collecting their corpses from the battlefield and winding them up in these big bales of barbed wire, shipping them back to Germany where they would melt the corpses down to make glycerin for more bombs. And of course, this was printed in the, the London Times. I mean, this was printed in some of the biggest newspapers in the world. So wow. I was working on this documentary and I was listening to Tim Poole talk to China Uncensored about organ harvesting and all these different things. And so um, if you look into the background of these people from China Uncensored, you will find connections to this company called Newtong Dynasty. And you'll find it there on their producers LinkedIn. You'll find it on if you just look at their broadcast compared to New Tong Dynasty's broadcast, and you'll see that they're clearly shot in the same studio, even though China Uncensored says, hey, we're just three people filming this in our living room. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. Um, and if you look into New Tong Dynasty, you'll see that they have these connections to this group called Falun Gong. And if you even listen to the host, Chris Chappell of China Uncensored, um, talk about this uh, Falun Gong. It's this, uh, you know, this great spiritualist movement. And um, the, these adherents to this are really, really healthy. And, and new, uh, China Uncensored and Chris Chappell will deny that they're affiliated with Falun Gong. But he talks about it all the time and even brought it up on Tim Pool's show. And Tim didn't think to question him about Falun Gong or anything like that, unless I'm mistaken, but I, I didn't see it. And um, so if you look into Falun Gong, Falun Gong is the spiritualist movement that started in China. It gained a lot of traction uh, until they ran afoul of the Chinese Communist Party and they were persecuted. Um, mm -hmm. The Chinese Communist Party called them extremists. Uh, I don't know if they went so far as to call them terrorists, but they, they persecuted them. So um, the leader, the guy who created it all, his name was Li Hongzhi, and he basically picked up the whole movement and moved it to the United States. So he moved to um, to New York City, and eventually him and his adherents bought a compound in upstate New York, where there's you know there's a classic facility where where he's there, kind of as the Grand Poupon, and um, so there there's there's or the Grand Poobah, should I say? So, so he's up there and he has all of his adherents working very hard and giving all their money to the spiritualist group. And some of those adherents created a couple companies. One of one such company was called the Epic Times and the other company was called New Tong Dynasty. And they are directly, I mean, they are Falun Gong. Uh, Li Hongzhi goes to their events, he speaks and he gives them their marching orders. He tells them to infiltrate the media, to become regular media, and to destroy the Chinese Communist Party. And so you you have transcripts of his speeches at, at New Tang Dynasty and Epic Times events, um, and you can see the slant of their media coverage in, in what they do. And so the fact that China Uncensored is trying to hide the fact that they are a subsidiary of New Tang Dynasty, the fact that they are Falun Gong practitioners. Um, and, and I mean, so Falun Gong, they're the people that will go to DC and go to, to like New York City holding these signs that say, end the Uyghur genocide or stop organ harvesting. And, and they'll hand out pamphlets and do all those things. And they get on and they make the most outlandish claims about all these things. And 
I mean, particularly the or organ harvesting claim, Chris Chappell and, and some of the guys from China Uncensored went on Tim Pool and were saying that organ harvesting is happening at an industrial scale, that elites in China will pick up a phone, they'll call an organ service, and they will phone up a prison camp in Xinjiang, they will order a fresh liver, and, uh, oh, make sure you get the one from the Falun, guy, uh, Falun Gong guy because he's never had any drugs and he does Tai Chi every morning. So I want that liver in my daughter or whatever, you know, um, just these crazy claims. And, you know, Tim Pool doesn't push back or ask any follow-up questions or ask what Falun Gong is. He's just like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. And then people watch Tim Pool thinking that they're getting some kind of something different than the mainstream media when, no, it's the same shit. It's just told in a way that's more insidious because you watch him for hours and hours and hours and you get long form Joe Rogan discussions and think that that equals something different than, than what you're getting from Tucker Carlson or from, you know, from CNN. It's not. So anyways, that that's the long and short of the, the whole Falun Gong connection. So basically we've got a country that is declared our number one enemy by the Pentagon we have a group of people that was trained by the CIA under Os uh, and Osama bin Laden and used by NATO allies in Syria for the last couple decades. And we have news sources that are already at odds with the Chinese Communist Party uh, reporting on this. So <laughs> any takeaways should be taken with a big grain of salt, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I just, um, I primarily urge you know, caution and for people to, to push back against this narrative because Americans, and, and this is one thing that I, I wrote about recently is there, I called it in my article, cheese in the trap. Um, and it, it got some, some pushback, not a whole lot, but I think it caused a lot of discussion, which I was really happy about. But if you, I took a step back and I was thinking about it, that over the last decade or eight years or so we've had from the left, We've had China, 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 or excuse me, Russia, Russia, Russia. We have the Russia Gate hoax. We have you know Russia hacking, hacking our elections. Russia, Russian cyber attacks. Uh, you have the Russian narrative behind the Hunter Biden laptop story. So we have one half of the country who's been convinced that Russia is the boogeyman under the bed, that they're going to come up, that they want to destroy the United States, that they have attempted regime change in this country. Half right. of the country believes that narrative. The other half of the country thinks that Chinese, uh, that the Chinese Communist Party is committing genocide, that they're stealing our intellectual property, that they're buying up professors and they've infiltrated the universities and they're pushing critical race theory, that the, that Chinese fentanyl is flowing across the southern border, as Marjorie Taylor Greene said. Yeah, that's my favorite one. <laughs> it, it's just this crazy, like this, this crazy, spooky, ooga booga stuff. And um, so my hypothesis is essentially that these two narratives at some point in time are going to have to intersect. That if, if the United States has openly declared renewed great power competition, they have named Russia and China as the empire's two biggest enemies. We have one half of the country who is, is promoting hatred and fear of Russia and the other half who's promoting hatred and fear of China. At some point in time, we're going to, we're, we're, if we're not already in some kind of fifth generational warfare, which I think is a possibility, um, Although I, I hate to like declare that we're in any war right now because we're not. 
um, that at some point in time, these narratives are going to intersect and the populist right is going to become anti-Russia and the, the Democrats are, are, they're already kind of anti-China, but that's just all going to come full circle and, and it's going to enable a real war. Yeah. So libertarians are an exception to what I'm about to talk about, but a lot of the people who aren't anti-China, they're straight up tankies, right? They, they love yeah. China and its culture and the, the Chinese Communist Party and everything. Um, are you familiar with James Lindsay? No, I'm not. Well, I know the name, but no. Okay. So I've had him on my podcast once. He's kind of big these days and he's talking about um, critical race theory and um, a lot of like the dissolvation of the family structure and of what gender is and all this stuff. And he, he has basically drawn it all back to it being a communist ideology pushed in our educational system. And I, I do think he's pretty on target. Like, I mean, he, he, he's not making any big leaps. He seems to connect everything pretty well. And I don't think that he himself is a hawk because I talked to him for two hours and he was just pushing libertarian ideals. Basically, we need to reinstate in this country the values of life, liberty and property. I didn't I've never heard him push any neocon talking points. Maybe he has, but I haven't heard it. So I don't have any issues with him or his message. But I feel like a lot of people who listen to him, this just breeds fear and all they're going to want to do instead of trying to defund the Department of Education and decentralize education, bringing it back to communities and doing away with the federal stronghold on it and, you know, pushing all this crap on people, uh, this one size fits all failed government solution that we have. Instead of doing that, I'm just afraid they are going to just, you know, kind of resort back to their neoconservative ways of saying, you know, this is an ideology being pushed by China and Cuba or wherever else. And we need to, even though it's infesting our schools here in the United States, they still want to deal with it in other countries. Like, I mean, I, I think like we, we tend to think that the right has gotten a little bit better on war, but it kind of just depends on which war it is. You know, like right. if it's war with Iran, man, like, I mean, some of them will be against it, but a lot of them won't. And then when it comes to Cuba, Venezuela or China, you know, those are socialist or communist countries. So, you know, everything's on the table. Nothing's off the table as far as, you know, being aggressive toward them goes. And that's just really concerning to me because, uh, you know, I hate Biden, obviously, but I feel like his weakness is weak. Not, I mean, he's not weak on foreign policy, like you said, but his weak composure is actually a good thing because it makes people really suspicious of what's going on and really skeptical of any move he makes where Obama didn't have that at all. Obama had a very strong composure, is very eloquent, seemed to have a, you know, a commanding presence and an idea of what he was doing. And he got away with a ton of shit. So like a, a President DeSantis, who's really hawkish on Iran, really hawkish on China, really hawkish on Cuba and Venezuela, I think could put us in an even worse place than Biden has with Russia. I mean, we'll see what happens with Russia. I hope that we're not stupid enough to actually put boots on the ground in Ukraine or something. But barring that, 
possibility. I'm terrified of the <laughs> the populist right once they get in charge, especially because there's so much desire for vengeance right now, you know, from uh, against the left, which I completely understand um, after the last couple of years. But I feel like their mentality is we've given everything away to China. Biden has sold us out to China. The coronavirus was given to us by China, even though, you know, that's actually the United States fault. It might have happened in China. But if you trace right. it back to the labs and who was in charge, it's still technically the United States doing that, just like mm -hmm. it is in Ukraine. Um, I don't know. Do you share that fear or what are your thoughts? No, I, I'm very concerned about the populist right and, and about the backlash that we're going to see. And I think that, I mean, talking about those two narratives intersecting, but the other thing about DeSantis is is the Israel connection too. I mean, the, the BDS movement oh, yeah. being, being very strongly condemned. And I... Um, Just I, one, one other thing too, before you yeah. keep going. Um, I look at DeSantis, I know I brought up Obama, I look at DeSantis exactly the same way that I look at Obama. So you've got someone who was right on the big issue. So for Obama, he was against the war in Iraq, at least, you know, going into Iraq or whatever. DeSantis was mostly good on COVID. And, you know, there's a couple other things that he's sort of based on, like when he doesn't send the National Guard to the State of the Union address or stuff like there, there's some things. But for the most part, mm -hmm. he's really just good on that one thing. Like if I mean, at, at least on a presidential level, if you start looking at what he thinks about national security, foreign policy, I mean, he's terrifying. So <laughs> big red flag yeah. there for me. But yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm not allergic to praising DeSantis where he's good. You know, sure. he's good on on the COVID issue. He's not as good as Christy Nome was at the beginning, um, and and I tend to be more skeptical of, you know, is this a principled stand that he took? I I think I tangled with Tho Bishop a little bit on yeah. on whether or not DeSantis was taking a principled stand when he did what he did about COVID. And, and I think it was a calculated risk. It was a big risk, granted, but it was a huge reward. And I think he read the yeah. tea leaves and was willing to risk his political career for, for an opportunity to be thrust into the presidential conversation. And I think if, you know, he's a smart guy, he's a lawyer. He's, I think he was Navy intelligence, wasn't he? Or he was so, um, but I, I was about to say too that he did you know this and I have to give a hat tip to Robbie Martin whom um I know you had Abby on your show uh but um I was I had Robbie on my show and we talked about this a bit more but uh Robbie is kind of digging into DeSantis's background and DeSantis called in the IDF when that condo collapsed in Florida he called the IDF to Florida in uniform to assist with the fallout from that condo collapse and <laughs> So you have. Did he have them bring a bulldozer? Is that no? Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, um, they're good I, with those. I've heard. So. Well, I think they. I don't know if they were in charge of the uh, controlled demolition of the yeah. rest of that tower. So, um, but yeah, I, I'm very concerned about it. You know, and uh, so I I want to do. I see China, and I I have to give a hat tip to Dave DeCamp too because. Dave really was the one who, through his writing at antiwar.com, really alerted me to this. And I had Dave on my show and we talked about how important this was and especially the economic decoupling narrative because um, 
Dave, I think quite accurately sees the, our economic relationship with China as being the biggest barrier to a real conflict with that country. And I think there are a lot of forces that are working to try and, and get rid of that. Uh, that coupling that we have with China economically as trade partners. And I think that once that goes, uh, there won't be a lot holding us together anymore. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So uh, just for the last few minutes here, what, what do you think about the situation in Ukraine at this point? Are you hopeful that it can be resolved or do you think this is going to turn into another Syria or do you think we're stupid enough to turn this into World War III? I think that, uh, you know, Connor Freeman and Kyle Anzalone um, and, and Will Porter, they have all been doing excellent work on, on the Ukraine situation. And, uh, I, you know, Scott has too, of course, but they've uncovered what I think is, is kind of a concerted um, effort by the U.S. foreign policy establishment uh, and no, and NATO to prolong the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, this was actually written about and admitted in the Washington Post that I believe either Washington Post or New York Times that for some in NATO, it is better that the war keep going than to have a, a peace that comes at too great a cost for Europe. So I think what you really have is uh, the people of Ukraine being sacrificed at the altar of Europe being put into the meat grinder and are being um, sacrificed to prolong a war with Russia in Ukraine, where I think um, Zbigniew Brzezinski said in 2014 something about how it would be wonderful to cause an insurgency in Ukraine and to lure Russia into fighting a war on its border and to have it basically give them another Afghanistan, Afghanistan from the 1980s. And you have weapon shipments going into Ukraine that are not weapons that would, well, it, they would get us into World War III, but weapons like tanks and aircraft and really high-tech stuff that Zelensky could use to actually beat Russia, which I don't think is even a possibility with those weapons. But the weapons that are going to him are insurgency weapons. They're small arms. They're shoulder-fired rockets. I'm sure there's explosives going in there, too. There's, uh, you know, you have the CIA training uh, Ukrainian uh, paramilitary groups and, and I believe military groups uh, in Ukraine leading up to what this war was. And so I think the real goal here from the side of NATO and the foreign policy establishment is to prolong the war in Ukraine as long as possible. And they're using Zelensky, I believe, as a useful idiot to make that happen, stringing him along with promises and pledges of support. But really, in actuality, his people are there to bleed and die while we get what we want. And that is to beat Russia down and to ultimately cause regime change in that country. All right, man. Well, where can people keep up with you? In the description, I've got your Twitter and your YouTube linked. But what interesting shows have you got coming up and where else do you want people to keep up with your work? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, thanks thanks for having me on, Reed. Uh, really glad to connect with you when you came on my show last week and to get a chance to talk about uh, stuff I've been working on on your show. Uh, people can go to libertyweekly.net. That's kind of your one-stop shop. Otherwise, the Libertarian Institute right now is we're having a fundraiser. We have matching pledges. So up to up to the next $20,000, there's a generous donor that has decided to uh, match pledges. So we, we really, really need your help to continue 
um, all of the hard work that we're doing. People like Keith Knight, Kyle Ancelone, uh, Connor Freeman, Tommy Salmons, uh, Will Porter, uh, and all of our great team of writers over there at the Institute. Um, so we've been trying to work really hard throughout this Ukraine crisis to, to let every, everybody know what's going on. Um, as for me, on my show, I'm, I'm doing an episode on the Project 2049 Institute, which is the, I think I mentioned it in this show, it's the think tank that is behind the weapons sales to Taiwan. So I, I want to do an expose of that. And then I have Lori Calhoun from the Institute I'm interviewing her about her book, War and Delusion, uh, next week. And that's actually where she talks about the the fallacy of just war theory. And she's done a lot of work on on killing in war, which is another one of my focuses that I, I do a lot of work on. So um, people want to sign up for my Substack, libertyweekly.net forward slash Substack. I've been pre-publishing my articles there, doing bonus content. And I, I think it's one of the best substacks in the liberty movement. There are a lot of there are a few good ones, but I'm really trying to make mine the best. But uh, those are all my plugs, man. Thanks again. Yeah, pleasure to have you on, man. We'll have to do it again. Um, yeah, everybody, this episode really kind of mirrors the episode I did with Daniel McAdams as far as furthering CIA talking points, especially when they're coming from such shaky information that's most likely not true, but even if it is all true, us getting militarily involved or putting sanctions or waging some sort of economic war with China would absolutely not make life better for anybody. So don't buy into it. Don't repeat it. They 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 tug on our heartstrings saying stand with Ukraine or you know, stand with Hong Kong, stand with Taiwan, whatever. But this is the same government that has been supporting the starvation of people in Yemen the starvation and murder of people in Palestine and also invaded Iraq and Afghanistan and supported overthrowing the government in Libya, bringing slavery back and supported ISIS and Al-Qaeda against Assad in Syria. So <laughs> that's just the last 20 years too. So, yeah. um, you know, take everything they say with a grain of salt and realize no matter how bad another country is that your government is supporting worse things. And even if it weren't, if it were to get involved, things would not get better. But um, I'll have Dave Smith on the show on Tuesday night. And then a week from tonight, we're doing the Four Horsemen. And Alex Stein is our special guest. So make sure to tune in for that. And yeah, go follow Patrick. I've enjoyed his stuff. And uh, yeah, we'll do it again, man. Thanks for coming hey, on. Hey, hey, if I could read one last sure. thing. I'm sorry to... Um, there, There is another level too beyond this whole thing. And you'll see people in the United States talking about China saying, oh, they're so awful and they're so horrible. Uh, they're so bad. They lock people down. But wouldn't it be awesome if we could do that here? And so there's a whole level. You had James Corbett on, one of the four horsemen. And, yeah. and I every time I love his work, and he talks about like the, the 3D chess that's going on too. So there's the, the national level of nation states fighting, but then there's a level above it. And if you look at the development of China, you'll find people like Henry Kissinger and, and David Rockefeller and all of these, these, these uh, swamp creatures, the elites that are also involved in financing that country. And, uh, and they are not providing an alternative to the US-led unipolar world order. They are propagating the same new world order all of the technocratic stuff, all of the transhumanist agenda. So don't go thinking that 
that China or Russia are presenting a different type of world that's better than what the West has planned for us. So I just had to throw that in there. LibertyWeekly.net forward slash 170 is my interview with James Corbett where we go in depth on this. So you'll want to check that out too. But sorry about that. No, no, thanks for throwing that in for sure, guys. James Corbett's great. Another guest I'd like to get back. But go follow Patrick. I got the links in the description and uh, libertyweekly.net. I will add that. It's not in there for the live viewers, but if you're uh, watching this afterward or listening to it, it should be there. So go check those out. Everyone have a good Sunday night. Patrick, thanks again. Thank you.